0: Learn all about investing in real estate in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, with a combination of real estate financial planning and modeling with numbers specific to Cedar Rapids. Plus syndicated, more generalized recordings of live and pre-recorded real estate investing classes, not all of them specific to Cedar Rapids. Be sure to stay tuned after the podcast for a message from our sponsors. Well, good morning and welcome, everyone. This is James Orr, and today we're going to do a class that is very similar to the class we did yesterday. Yesterday, we did a class on how to calculate cap rate, capitalization rate on rental properties. Today, we're going to do a class on how to calculate cash on cash return on investment. And I don't think it's a big secret that I'm not the biggest fan of cap rate. I think the problem, the shortcoming with cap rate is that it doesn't take into account the financing associated with the rental property that you're analyzing. It's just a way to determine how much income the property is producing divided by what the purchase price or the current value is. That's what cap rate is. But when we calculate cash on cash return, we have to take into account the financing on the property. So we determine what the the cash flow is after the mortgage and if we have PMI on the property. And then we divide that by what we invested into the property in order to determine how productive the cash we invested into the property is in producing one of the four, technically five, areas of return that we have on the property. And so that's what we're going to cover today in this particular class, provided the PowerPoint works. Oh, there we go. Okay, awesome. So today what we're going to do is we're going to walk through an example, and I'll tell you where I get the numbers for each step. And it looks like our... uh, Our police person has arrived for the class, so Nick can tell me if I miss any of the uh, particular sources of the data for today's presentation. Um, I think yesterday, (laughs) I don't want to get him in trouble, but I think yesterday he was distracted by trying to do some work during the webinar. Today's Saturday, so shouldn't be as much work, at least that's my guess. You can correct me if I'm wrong on that one, so. All right. So we'll go through an example. I'll tell you where to get the numbers. They can correct me if I'm wrong. And I will start with a brand new spreadsheet I made. I made two of these. I made one for the visual cap rate on rental property calculator. And then now I have a visual cash on cash return on investment calculator for rental property as well. All it really does is it takes the calculation and it lays it out visually so that you can see like the relationship of all the different things that go in the calculation. It's not anything crazy. I mean, it's just kind of a nice little At least I think it's a nice little visual. You guys can tell me if you think it's not nice. So, so we'll go over that, my brand new spreadsheet. And then uh, the spreadsheet that I've had now for, oh, probably at least a year now, probably actually, no, I, I think I did this last like March or so. So, uh, you know, we're coming up on a year for the world's greatest real estate deal analysis spreadsheet. Um, And you can go ahead and download a copy of the world's greatest real estate deal analysis spreadsheet at realestatefinancialplanner.com forward slash spreadsheet. And uh, Layla says, if I become a subscriber, is this a spreadsheet I could get? So the world's greatest real estate deal analysis spreadsheet as of right now. And by the way, these things, because I'm recording these and people can be listening to them years and years later. Um, Right now, the world's greatest real estate deal analysis spreadsheet is completely free. If you go to real forward slash spreadsheet, you could download that one. The visual cash on cash return on investment calculator for rental property. Um, my thought right now, because it's brand new, is I'm going to post it in the uh, members area for the people on Substack. So that's the thinking on that. So if you want that, you can go download it. Um, but honestly, as you will see, I will use it to show you exactly how the calculation is done. But as you will see, not that I'm trying to like like, uh, um, deter you from signing up and paying my money. Uh, you're welcome to do that. We would love that, actually. That, that'd that be great. Uh, however, you don't need the visual cash on cash return on investment calculator for rental property because the calculation is done for you in the world's greatest real estate deal analysis spreadsheet. So technically you don't need it, um, but that's good there. And then another spreadsheet I made, um, and th- this one will probably be where the visual cash on cash return on investment is a mouthful visual cash on cash return investment calculator for rental property where that spreadsheet will be i'll also post the rental portfolio cash on cash roi spreadsheet which gives you a nice way to kind of like see all of your rental properties in one spot with what their cash on cash is again that's a brand new spreadsheet i made as well so i will give you uh, that um uh, in the uh the substack members area as of right now and then because that's not enough Um, A second tab on the visual cash-on-cash return investment calculator for rental property is the improved cash-on-cash return investment focuser. So I'll show you what that means tonight, or this morning, tonight. Man, it's already tonight. Um, I just woke up. And so uh, that will be on the second tab of that visual cash-on-cash return investment calculator. So you'll be able to see what parts of the equation, formula, will make the biggest impact for you if you're trying to improve cash on cash. Because I think that's a challenge for a lot of folks right now, right? We're, we're in a market where prices have gone up quite a bit. Um, interest rates are up a lot. And rents are sort of lagging. I mean, they're up, but they're not quite up as much as prices and interest rates are. And so therefore, cash flow is not as great as it has been in the last few years. And I've been telling people this for years. I'm like, look, everything's on sale right now. You guys may not think it because prices are up and you're kind of like thinking, oh, man, you know, prices are way up and you know, how can it be on sale? It's been on sale because the interest rates were so low and they were going down. Now that interest rates are not that low and they've been going up, everything's not on sale and so i think that that's frustrating a lot of folks and that's a it's a lot of what we're focusing on in this market right you know if you've got a property especially if you've got property where you've owned it for a while and equity has increased quite a bit and you're thinking to yourself okay i've got all this equity Maybe I should re-leverage up, or maybe I should sell this property and redeploy this capital somewhere else, or maybe I should go get like a HELOC or on the investment property and take some of that money and reinvest it. I think the challenge a lot of folks are having is, you know, what am I going to buy with this? You know, I've got this amazing loan on this property, I got a ton of equity, and so the the equity is not super productive because you know prices are up and equity has increased, um, and the cash flow on it's not as amazing as it once was. Especially when you think about it in returns, return on equity. Which I need to do a class on return of equity, but I digress. The third day in a row with the, I digress stuff. So anyway, if the the problem we're having is that what do you do? Do you, do you redeploy that capital? And tomorrow's class, I just posted it this morning. Tomorrow's class is what does it mean to be financially independent? And I will go over all the different components. That could make you financially independent. It's not just one thing. And so we'll go look at those and then you can decide, hey, look, I want to be financially dependent using this particular measure, this way of getting there. And so now you can ignore all the other noise out there and decide, you know, I don't need to worry about whatever it is crypto or fix and flips or, you know, even buying more rental properties if that's, you know, not your strategy. I can ignore all those other things and really focus in on this one area because that's the way to be financially independent. And honestly, if you've, if you've heard the old story about Warren Buffett and his uh, airline pilot, the airline pilot basically asked Warren Buffett, you know, the secret to, to being successful. And he told him, you know, make a list of the 20 most important things that you want to accomplish in your life. And so the airline pilot goes, he makes this list of the 20, he says, okay, rank them from one to 20, one being the most important, 20 being the least important. And then uh, Warren Buffett says, okay, now take number five, anything below number five, That list are the things that you must avoid at all costs because they are distractions. They are things that seem important, but they're not because you really need to focus all of your energy on those top five and only those top five. You think that, oh, maybe I'll eventually get to number six and I really should be working a little bit on that now or number seven or number 11 or number 14. But really, that's the problem. The problem is that you think that those are important when they're really not important because you're never going to get to them. And they're going to distract you from achieving the top five. And so really tomorrow, what we're going to go over, not today, this is not today's class. but tomorrow we're going to go over is, you know, focusing in on what is most important for getting you to be financially independent and then realizing you need to ignore all the other crap, even though it's shiny object. You're like, woo, you know, the flipping land, that sounds amazing. Or, um, you know, doing short term rentals, that sounds amazing. Or, you know, doing this nomad thing, you know, I just learned about that. That sounds amazing. And maybe that is in your top five. But if it's not in your top five, you need to be able to say no. And I think tomorrow we'll get some clarity on that. Okay. Now that I'm way off topic. Today, we're going to go over the uh, how to improve on cash on cash return investment with the focuser. And if you want to see more examples of me calculating cash on cash, you're welcome to go to realestatefinancialplanner.com forward slash calculate dash cash dash on dash cash. So calculate cash on cash with dashes instead of spaces. Okay. So this is it. This is the visual cash on cash return on investment calculator for rental property. And all it does is it walks you through visually what is happening in order to get there. And if you were on the call yesterday, the webinar yesterday, you heard me go through this very similar looking thing to do cap rate. Why? Because they're similar because up to the net operating income calculation, they're identical. You you need net operating income in order to calculate cap rate, and you need net operating income in order to calculate cash on cash return. So they look similar enough to there, but once we get to net operating income, we do something different with it for the calculation for cap rate. For cap rate, we divide it by purchase price or the current value of the property. For cash on cash, we're going to subtract out all the mortgage expenses, and then we're going to um, divide that by the total cost of closure, the total amount we invest in the property in order to determine it. So that's where we're headed today. Uh, A recap for those that didn't watch yesterday's webinar or listen to the podcast or whatever you're doing. Um, All the red inputs on here are what I call primary real estate metrics. There are things that you don't have to calculate them. You get them from somewhere else. For example, rent. You're not calculating rent. You're just getting it. Rent appears. It's like, it's what you can get for the property. Or, um, you know, what your property taxes are. It's not like you need to calculate that. All the blue ones... Are ones where you calculate. You take, you know, two primary inputs like rent and other income, and that gives you gross potential income. As an example, so all the blue ones become these kind of like they're almost like compound calculations. When I think about real estate, kind of like metrics, the uh, the hierarchy of real estate metrics, like how we get the calculation. The more complicated it is, the more inputs it has the more likely it is to have errors and the, and the less you should trust it in a lot of ways, right? And so the further down this line of calculations we go, the more errors we've kind of inserted into the calculation. And so the less certain we should be of that kind of number. Um, and so some of these get really, really complicated. Like when we look at the overall return on investment we have from... You know, appreciation and debt pay down and the tax benefits of depreciation and the, the cash flow on the property. We have all four of those things going in and all the inputs that go into getting to that point. That, that's, that number is awesome. You know, we love that number, but it doesn't really have a lot of certainty in it because there's so many assumptions that go into it. Um, you'll see just the assumptions for one of those areas on the cash on cash return investment today. So we're kind of going there. All right. So the blue ones are the ones that are compound. The yellow ones are ones that take both a compound input, a secondary one, and you also have primaries or more than one uh, kind of blue one in there. And so you can kind of see they get more complicated as we go down. The red ones are all the ones you're going to need inputs for, and the green ones kind of what we're seeking. it's the only one that's not color coded based on you know how it is in terms of the hierarchy of metrics there. Okay, so I'm going to walk you through this whole analysis by zooming in, and then I'll zoom back out with the numbers we need. So the first step is, in order to calculate cash on cash, return on investment, we need to know what the cash flow is on the property, after all expenses, and we divide that by the total cost to close. And the total cost to close consists of your down payments, your share of the closing costs as a buyer, anything you need to get into the property, that really should be included in that. And there's some gray area here, and and I hate to be inexact, but this is really, this is the reality of it, okay? If you have a property that you're buying and it's distressed, and you know that going into it, you're going to need, you know, paint or carpet or to replace a kitchen sink or to put a refrigerator in, does that count as a total cost to close? It's an interesting question, right? Because do you take into account the stuff you need, the rent-ready costs, for a property to be ready to to uh to kind of like rent and i think for most of you i think that you should include those right because it it truly is a how much cash return the cash flow you're getting on a property and you had to invest that money in order to get the property to exist it's like the total amount you needed to invest in the property so how much cash did you need to bring to the table including the money that you needed to get it there in order to be able to have this property produce this amount of cash flow. So I do think you probably do include those. And some people would argue, you no, know, you know, the purists out there would say to me, you know, JS, but that's not really technically the cash on cash. Yeah, maybe. I I actually think it is. I think that you probably should have, you know, the money you need in order to get the property rent ready uh, in there. Because then people start saying, well, well, what about, you know, you know, you're going to need a roof and, you know, two years, should you kind of include that in there? I don't know. Now you're getting a little crazy on me. Um, and, and honestly, this metric is not, well, it's it's probably one of the most important metrics when you're analyzing a deal to make sure that you get a property that's, you know, not going to really drag you down. You know, like a, a kind of, a what do they call those? A, 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 what's the animal that they have around your neck? Is it a mongoose? What is the animal that they have? around your neck i don't know anyway you uh you don't want to have a property that's really going to drag you down with cash flow right you want a property that or if you're going to do it make sure that you plan for that and set aside enough money to handle any negatives. albatross thanks Lee. Like that's awesome albatross around your neck so you basically you don't want one of, one of those okay so i don't know where i was going with this i think i was talking about this idea of like total cost to close and how much do you include i think once you get the property, you make the decision to buy it, doing this cash on cash return investment calculation. I think as soon as you do this, <laughs> this is going to sound horrible. As soon as you do this calculation, you should abandon it, right? Because that's not the metric we are concerned about moving forward. Once you acquire the property, I think the metric that matters most is your cash flow on your equity, your cash flow return on equity calculation, because that basically tells you, okay, now now that I bought the property, it doesn't really matter what I used to invest in the property. Now that I bought the property, what I want to know is how much cash flow I'm producing on the amount of equity I now have tied up in this property. That becomes a much more important metric in my mind. So we do cash on cash return investment in order to make the investment decision. How much money do I need to put into the deal, and then how much cash flow am I generating on it? But once you get into the property. I don't think that's important anymore. I think what's most important then is, okay, I now have this much equity in the property and this is how much cash flow I'm producing. Do I want to stay in the property and continue to get this current return? Or do I want to sell this property, walk away with my net equity because you have expenses of getting out of there and then determine if I should reinvest that somewhere else? Because then it becomes a comparison of, should I stick with this when I have and the return I'm getting? Or should I then sell this property pay all the expenses on it or defer some of them. You can't defer all of them. I guess you could defer or eliminate all of them. I guess you could do that. And then you actually move on to something else. And so really, if you want to get super technical, the one I like most is your cash flow on the return on true net equity, which is your equity after you take into account all those expenses. Because that's the amount of money you would walk away with and that you could reinvest somewhere else. Man, is that a tangent or what? Okay, so getting back to the class at hand. Cash on cash return investment. So we're going to take the cash flow, which is all the money you've got coming in, divided by, you know, minus all the expenses you got going out, um, divided by the total cost to close. And I kind of included what sort of gets included in there and where you get it from. Uh, Divide Those, that actual calculation there is what cash on cash return investment is. So the total cost to close is a primary input. You just get that number from, you know, your closing sheet, you know, how much money you put in and how much money you, technically, I guess it is a calculation, right? Because if you have the money you had to put up for a down payment, plus the closing costs, plus any expenses you have in there. In fact, why don't I make a note? Because you know, technically that is right. It is It is actually a calculation. So, all right. Total cost to close. See, you're seeing this happen real time. It's not really primary because it gets calculated. So I'll kind of put in there what gets calculated in there. But you guys know what I mean. It's really a number you get off of somewhere else. It's like your closing sheet, the total amount you had to put down, plus the closing costs in order to get the loan, plus if you had any money that needs property to be rent ready, you could put all this in there to get debt. Okay. And I won't even go down the rabbit hole. I won't let you guys distract me and talk about reserves here, right? Because technically, you probably should have reserves in order to buy a rental property. I think it would be imprudent for you to go buy a rental property without reserves. And then you got to ask yourself, well, James, should I put my reserves in my total cost to close because I really need that money set aside in order to do that? So really, the cash on cash return investment is going to be even lower because you really should have you know, probably six months or 12 months of reserves, depending on what you're keeping it in, which I should do another class on reserves. But there you go. I won't even go there. All right, so stepping back. So we, we were doing this section before we talked about cash flow divided by total cost to close gives you cash on cash. Now I'm going to say, well, how do we calculate cash flow? Right, what does cash flow? The calculation look like, and really, what cash flow is? It's your net operating income, which is the amount of income you have coming in on the property, net of all your operating expenses. Which I will show you how to calculate. We're going to zoom back out, but net operating income is basically all the income you have coming in on the property um, after expenses, except for mortgage expenses, which is where we're getting next. So you take net operating income and you subtract out whatever your mortgage payments are. And by the way, most of the time we do these calculations yearly. So this net operating income is a yearly net operating income and the mortgage payments are your yearly mortgage payments and your cash flow is your yearly cash flow. And then your total cost of closes is whatever, total cost of closes. is, it's not monthly or anything like that, okay? So net operating income minus mortgage payments minus private mortgage insurance if you happen to have PMI. So in most cases, if you're buying an investment property, you're not gonna have PMI because most of the time when you buy an investment property, you're gonna put 20% down sometimes 25% down because the the difference in interest rate between a 20 and a 25% down payment is oftentimes enough such that you should probably figure out a way to come up with the extra 5% in order to get the better interest rate. But go do the calculations both ways court it out, you know, to run your world's greatest real estate deal analysis spreadsheet with 20% down and whatever the interest rate your lender gives you there, and then run it again with 25% and see what the difference in cash flow is because the interest rate is going to be better and you're going to be borrowing less. So usually your cash flow is significantly better when you do 25% down. So a lot of times you'll put 25% down. Okay. So most of the time when you're buying an investor property, you're going to have no private mortgage insurance. However, there is a 15% down non-owner occupant, aka investment mortgage. So you technically could buy a property with 15% down. In that case, you would have PMI. And you could either pay the PMI upfront as a one-time lump sum payment, which starts looking an awful lot like you're getting closer and closer to putting 20% down anyway. So you have to make a decision about that. Or most people would probably look at it in terms of a monthly private mortgage insurance payment, where you could actually get, um, you know, pay a little bit each month until you get up to 80% loan to value. And then usually that private mortgage insurance payment will drop off and you will not have it anymore and it'll go to zero, okay? Um, and that's not the only way that you can have private mortgage insurance when you're calculating this cash on cash. Let's say you're doing the nomad real estate investing strategy where you're buying a property. As an owner occupant, you're gonna live there for at least a year. It's a requirement of the lender that you do that. And then at the end of the year, you're gonna convert it to a rental. Well, a lot of times we will run analysis when we buy that property to say, look, I know I can't rent it in year one unless you're doing like house hacking where you have a, a roommate with you or something like that, or renting out a duplex or triplex or fourplex. And so you're gonna look at it and say, you know, I've got this property now that I'm either able to rent out if you're house hacking or doing duplex, triplex, or fourplex or whatever you're doing. Or a, a year from now, once the property has I've lived in a property for a year, I'm gonna convert it to a rental. What would cash flow look like either now or then? And most of the time, I tell you, just analyze it now because it's just simpler. So if you go and do that and you're putting less than 20% down, you're doing like a 5% down conventional loan or a 3.5% down FHA loan or 3% down conventional or nothing down USDA or nothing down VA loan, like all of those low down payment options that you could use to buy an owner-occupant property that you're moving into, in those cases, except for a VA, you'll have um, you'll have PMI. And and for those that don't know, I mean, I I just assumed everyone knows what, what PMI is. PMI, private mortgage insurance, is an insurance that you pay to protect the lender in case you default. And the way I like to describe it is, imagine for a minute the lender says to you, hey, look, I will loan you money in order to help you buy this house. And you're like, great. And they say, "Okay, what I'd like you to do, though, is I want you to have some skin in the game so that if the property value goes down, I'm protected. And that you would lose money first. And you're like, hey, that sounds reasonable to me. You're willing to loan me money in order to buy this house. It sounds reasonable that I have some skin in the game to do that. And so what the lender says is, I'd like you to put down 20% so that if the property value dips and I have to foreclose on you because you stopped making payments, that I'll be able to get all of my money back out, all that 80% value back out. And I will feel very, very safe in that position. And you're like, well, that sounds reasonable to me, but what if I wanted to put less down? And the mortgage company says, hey, let me think about that for a minute. Well, I'll tell you what I'm willing to do. If we find a third party, private mortgage insurance company, we find this third party and we say to them, look, the buyer, you, will go ahead and pay them a fee and they will take the risk on if there's a foreclosure and I am going to end up losing money. So what they will do is they will insure me as the lender for you only putting less down as if I had put 20% down kind of way to think about it, right? So what basically it does is it protects the lender in case they have to foreclose and they don't get all their money back as if you put 20% down. If you put 20% down, they feel comfortable. But when you don't put 20% down, they don't feel super comfortable. And so they want this third party in the way to protect them in case you default. And so you're paying the third party private mortgage insurance company a fee to protect the lender in case you default. That's what it is. In a lot of cases, not all, FHA doesn't ever go away. But in a lot of cases, the private mortgage insurance payments will go away once you get to 80% loan to value, once you get to that 20% cushion of equity from the property value going up and you paying down the loan. So that's where you get this from. The mortgage payments, you're going to get those from your mortgage payment statement or your lender. They're going to tell you what your mortgage payments are. The private mortgage insurance number, you're going to get that from your lender. They're going to tell you, hey, look, your PMI payment is going to be either X number of dollars up front as a one-time payment or monthly in order to um, you know, kind of help offset this risk and pay the mortgage insurance premium until you get to you know 80% loan to value or 78% loan to value or whatever it is for them. So you're gonna get those numbers from there. And then we already covered where to get the total cost to close. So we've got to the point now where we've calculated cash flow from net operating income, which is calculated. We'll show you how to do that here in a second. And then you get private, you get private mortgage insurance and your mortgage payments from those sources. All right. Let me take a break. All right. Zooming back out a little bit more. Now we've covered net operating income. We've covered mortgage payments. we covered private mortgage insurance. We've covered cash flow, total cost of to close, and now cash on cash return investment. Now we're going to step back and say, well, how do you calculate net operating income? Well, net operating income is really the, the net after expenses of the income you have on a property. So what does that mean? Well, we have this gross operating income. That's the amount of income you have coming in on the property, gross before expenses. And then you have your operating expenses. So you subtract your operating, and by the way, little what do they call the operator symbols. So this is minus. So gross operating income minus operating expenses gives you net operating income. Net operating income minus mortgage payments minus private mortgage insurance, and that equals cash flow. And then cash flow divided by total cost of close gives you total. It gives you your cash on cash return. So there's little operators in there to show you what's, what the calculation is. Okay, so gross operating income minus your operating expenses. So all the operating expenses are, which we're going to cover here in a second, all the things that cost you to operate the property, taxes, insurance, maintenance, property management, things of that nature. So those are all the operating expenses and the gross operating income is going to be all your rent, things of stuff like that, which we're going to show you how to calculate here in a second as well. Okay, any questions on that? So these are not inputs for you, right? These are not the red boxes where you need to come up with them. They're calculations, which we're going to calculate here in a second. All right, we've zoomed out again. Let's go calculate what gross operating income is. Well, gross operating income is the gross potential income. Gross potential income is all of the income you could possibly produce if nothing were to go wrong with your particular property. It's like in a perfect world with no vacancy, how much money could this property produce for me? We're going to calculate that here in a second, next step. Minus, so that gross potential income, minus how much you've set aside for vacancy. And you say to me, okay, so vacancy, where do I get that number from? Well, vacancy is an estimate of how much we think the property will be vacant in the future. I guess you technically could do it in arrears. If you wanted to calculate what your cash on cash return was over the last year, you could do something like that. But most of the time, it's a forward-looking number, right? We're trying to say, you know, how much will this property be vacant? And if it's a property that's not desirable and you're trying to get like absolute very top of the possible range of rents, might your vacancy be higher? Probably. Especially if you wait for your current tenant to move out before you start doing repairs and marketing your property to find your next tenant. However, if you start way early, even before the current tenant is out of the property, you ask your current tenant, you know, 90 days before their lease is about to expire, do you want to renew your lease, or should we start marketing the property in order to find the next tenant? Then you could start marketing the property if they don't tell you within a very short period of time, you know, within a week or so, hey, listen, I do want to renew, or no, I plan on moving out. Then you could start marketing your property, you know, 60 to 90 days before the property becomes vacant. Shouldn't your vacancy be a little bit lower? Even if you start you know, searching for a tenant with higher rent early on. And if you're not getting calls, you're not getting inquiries, you drop the rent a little tiny bit, do it for another few days, see if you're getting calls and inquiries, and then drop it another little bit. And so finally, you're at whatever the fair market rent is, and you're getting a reasonable number of calls and inquiries and applications on your property. And because you're starting 60 to 90 days in advance, you know, taking, you know, three or four or five days or a week, in order to test the slightly higher rent before you drop it a little bit and then continue testing it to refine it you know if you if you do that as a strategy once your vacancy be a lot lower so if you're using You know, this strategy of starting 69 days in advance and you're testing your rents and you're you're definitely a good salesperson about being able to, you know, talk to people and sell your property and tell them about the pros and cons and the benefits and why they should rent from you and not the other house down the street. If you're good at sales and you're, you know, selling the tenant and you're also good at marketing the property, you've got really good photos, you got really good description, you know, you got a good process the the property shows well because the current tenant is a high quality tenant that's taking care of the property and you've done all the maintenance of the property so that it looks good when you're showing it with the tenant there. Like if all these things are true, then vacancy I think should be in that kind of like 3% to 5% range, probably closer to 3%. But if you're kind of like laxadaisical, a little bit reactive in your kind of thing, you're you're kind of testing high rents. You're thinking, ah, I'd rather have a month of vacancy but get fifty dollars more a month in rent because that makes sense to me, which it doesn't. But you know, you're thinking of all these kind of different strategies. Then maybe you're you're kind of like vacancy is going to be five to eight percent, or maybe you're hiring a property manager and they're not doing a great job. You know, maybe that's five or eight percent. You know, or or even higher. I mean, if you have if you have like a really poor quality property, and it's in a rough part of town, and it's hard to fill, and, um, you know, you're trying to get really top dollar for the rent, because that's what you believe you should be doing, um, you know, you might have higher than that. Or if you have a lot of turnover, where you have tenants that are uh, constantly being evicted, because you have a low quality tenant pool, and by the way, you'll find better quality tenants by starting earlier, you get planners. You get somebody who's like, I don't need a property tomorrow because I'm evicted. I'm living on the street. I need a, a you know property tomorrow in order to find this. Um, I, I, you know My lease is going to expire at the end of whatever it is, March. And so that's when I want my uh, property. And so I'm going to start looking in January to find my replacement. That's the type of planning tenant, high quality tenant that you want. Someone who's thinking ahead. Someone who's not like out on the street looking for a property to, to live in tomorrow. I mean, and that's the type of people you get or a lot of vacancy where you're waiting for someone to move in if you've got a property that's vacant, you and you're trying to advertise. Okay. So the vacancy one you get, you use that as a percentage of the rent you're collecting. Because you know, we have that thing there. So you can kind of do the calculation. I I think you know, if you don't know any better, you know, 5% is probably pretty reasonable for that number. If you're a good property manager and you know what you're doing, you know, 3%, I think is a little bit um of a better number. And if you are a train wreck. <laughs> Man, that sounds horrible. But if you're a train wreck uh, with your property management skills, then uh, you know use a higher number. Okay. Am I doing a good job, Nick, with getting these uh, in here make sure we got all this stuff? Okay, good. Let me know. All right, so gross potential income, which we'll show you how to calculate. That one's really easy to calculate. And then minus vacancy dollar, that gives you that gross operating income, which we're going to need. Yeah, Nick says I'm doing a good job. So thank you. So you take all that stuff from the gross operating income, we're going to subtract that from the operating expenses. So what are operating expenses? Well, I told you before what they were. It's like property taxes on a property and property insurance and HOA fees and, and your share of utilities as the landlord and other expenses and maintenance and property management. So let's go through those just to make sure we kind of understand. Property taxes, you're usually going to get that from the MLS sheet. However, as I discussed probably in too much detail yesterday, that is not a firm number. And I think that's the problem, just in general, back up a little bit. That is the challenge, I think, for a lot of folks, is that they expect this cash on cash number to be super accurate. And, and honestly, I don't do them any favors by going out to three decimal places here to show you what the cash on cash return investment is, right? But it's not that accurate of a number, right? We have property taxes in here as, a, as like you know $2,956, just as an example. However, when you buy a property in some jurisdictions, in some markets, they actually reassess the property based on the sale and your property taxes are going to change. Because now they know what the real value is, high or low. Could go up, more likely, or it could go down, less likely. So it could change. And I gave the example yesterday of like, you know, you're buying a property from a senior and they had the senior tax exemption. They had like a homestead exemption on their property. And so maybe their taxes are really, really low. Like you're looking at it, you're like, wow, this, the property taxes on this property are only $1,200 a year. That's amazing. This property's is going to cash flow like crazy. Well, it's going to catch really crazy if you were a senior and you had a a senior homestead exemption on the property. Yeah, but when you buy the property, you no longer get that exemption, right? And so property tax numbers can change. They're not static. They're not fixed. And they probably will get changed when the property gets reassessed anyway. Like this number goes up over time. So just be aware that this is not a super exact science. Like if you're looking at two different properties and you're like, what well, this one gets me 4.91% cash on cash return. And this one gets me 4.85. I definitely should go with the 4.91. Not so fast. I think at that point, they're identical. And you need to go look at, okay, which one of these properties helps me achieve whatever goal I am trying to achieve that I want to hold in my portfolio for a longer period of time. And maybe I choose that one not necessarily the one that has a slightly better cash on cash return because it's not that accurate to begin with, right? It could get lost in a, you know, a bad vacancy or a property tax or or a property insurance claim that you didn't expect because it happens to be in a windier area of town and you're going to have shingles blown off. I mean, there's all sorts of weird stuff like that that can happen. So this is not that exact. It's not that exact of a science. So then I think you start looking at, you know, 4.9, 4.8, 4.7. They're all really, really close. Now, let me think about, okay, of the properties I'm considering, which one do I really want to have in my portfolio? Which one helps me achieve my goal? Which one's most likely to go up in value over a long period of time? Which one is most likely to be easier to rent? Which one is more likely to have people stay there for a long term as a renter in it? Which one am I able to add the most value to? Like these, all these other considerations. In fact, I probably should do, and let me know if you think I should do this, but I probably should do a class on that. Like, you know, the the non-cash-on-cash calculation considerations when selecting a particular property, right? Like it's all these soft skills, all these sort of speculative, maybe I shouldn't do a class on that because they are like, they're, they're they're speculative. Like what do I think is true about the future of this particular property? It's like all those gut feeling ones, all the the kind of blink things. If you remember Malcolm Gladwell's book Blink about making decisions on stuff, right? Like how you kind of think about those. So I don't know. We'll have to go into that in detail. But so you know where to get property taxes from, and you know why it's not always one hundred percent accurate. Similarly with property insurance. I think you when you start your search to buy a replacement property, you call your insurance agent on a property really early on property, and you say, "Look, this is this is pretty typical for the properties I'm looking at." What would property insurance be on a property? If you have other properties, you don't even need, need to do this because you know. But you know, what would property insurance be on a property that I'm buying? That's you know about a X dollar property with you know four bedrooms and, or this marketplace and this you know, kind of thing. And they'll say you know insurance on that would be sixteen hundred dollars a year, whatever, whatever number they give you. Then you know if you're going to go look at a property that's a little bit more expensive than the one you got your initial quote from, maybe you bump up insurance by I don't know five percent, ten percent. If it's a little bit cheaper, maybe you bump it down by a little bit there. But you're not calling your insurance, at least I don't think you should. I think this is, this is borderline harassment. You're not calling your property insurance company every time you're analyzing a brand new deal. You get six new properties in the morning, you have your insurance agent on the phone running insurance quotes on six properties. Sounds like overkill, right? You're going to use a rough number to do your calculation. Maybe when you go out to the property, you're like, oh, this one does look interesting. I I think I would like to make an offer on this. At that point, you probably could call your insurance agent sir, insurance agent, and get an updated quote from them, or maybe you wait for your offer to get accepted. If you're going to you know, do an offer that doesn't have a high probability of getting accepted, maybe you wait until after it gets accepted and you're in your due diligence period, provided you keep your due diligence deadline, your ability to object if insurance is unreasonable or you're unable to get it. If you don't have that deadline and the ability to terminate, maybe you do call them beforehand and make sure, double check. But that's the idea. And so insurance, you're going to have these kind of rough numbers in place while you're doing your calculations, and then you'll firm them up later as we go. Okay. HOA fees, you're going to usually get that from your real estate agent or find out what HOAs they're in, and then call the HOA companies if you're doing this yourself. Uh, Landlord paid utilities. This is not like the utilities that are for the property that the tenant is paying. So normally in a lot of markets, that's gonna be electricity and water and sewer um, and gas, you know, whatever the the heating source is that they're gonna use for the property. A lot of times the tenant is gonna be paying those. The landlord paid utilities are the utilities that are exclusive for the landlord to pay. For example, that I like to use all the time is you have a fourplex. There's a common area like a foyer where when you walk in, it's kind of lit. It's got four doors going to the four different units. And that central area, is its own utilities that the landlord is responsible for paying that would be an example of an expense you put here because that's something you as a landlord are paying the other tenants are paying for their own individual units okay Uh, other expenses snow removal uh cleanup around a property uh landscaping that you kind of have to do you know to kind of maintain if especially if it's multifamily things like that are usually covered in other expenses um There's probably other examples in there, but that's kind of like the catch-all for all the other things you have there. And then maintenance on the property, you're going to set aside a certain amount of money. I mean, you know that things are going to wear out over time. You need to budget for those. I, I probably need to do an updated class on capital expenses and maintenance and kind of walk through those again. If you have access to the old one, you can go watch that. There's some really good stuff in there about like what's maintenance, what's capital expenses, and what's normal. And I, I made some like really crazy, like, you know, this spreadsheet's kind of cool. But I made some ridiculously cool spreadsheets for doing capital expenses and maintenance and kind of budgeting those. And, and, and in fact, I should make a note. That is, uh, that's something I should talk about when I talk about when you should sell. All right, made didn't note for myself. Thank you. All right, cool. So uh, those are the maintenance things. You should definitely have a maintenance number. So typically what it is, it's a percentage. You can really do the full calculation and say, look, these are the components and this is how frequently and this is how old they are. And you could do the calculation. That's what one of the spreadsheets does. Or you could say, look, you know, I'm going to set aside whatever to 8%, 10%. 12%, 15% of the um, rents coming in to set aside for maintenance on the property. And again, that's forward-looking, that's an estimate. Now, is it possible you could have a tenant stay in a property for 12 years and you not have to replace carpets for 12 years? Yep, definitely possible. Is it possible that you could have three tenants in three years, just not no fault of your own, just you know, the tenant moves in, they get a job offer in another state, they move out. They, another tenant moves in, they decide to fall in love and get married and they move out. You know, Another tenant moves in, they're uh, only going to be there for a year, and then they move out at the end of the year. And then after three relatively hard turns from three hard tenants, you have to replace carpet. Is that possible? Sure. Sure. But you're kind of estimating moving forward. All right. And then finally, property management. If you're going to do property management yourself, a lot of times you'll use zero here. If you're going to do property management yourself, some people will put you know some of their hard costs of doing property management. I think fewer people, but some would probably put in you know, a nominal fee for what their hours are, are worth doing that. And then, of course, if you're hiring a professional property management uh, company, you would actually put in what your cost is to have them do the work for you there. Okay. No questions, I assume. If there are questions, you go ahead and put them in there. So that is how you calculate those. Let's step back one more time to show you how to calculate gross potential income, but it's really easy. Your gross potential income, the amount of income you could potentially earn on this property before anything else happens is really a combination of your rent and any other income you can get from the property. So if you have you know, rent from the main house or the main fourplex or whatever it is, but then you've got you know, three RV parking spots. In addition to the rent on the main property, could you technically throw those in with rents and have like, you know, just a bigger number there? Sure. But that's really what I'm actually saying here, right? You have other income plus rent. You, you could set aside the rent you're getting from the RVs parking spots or you know, the the extra Airbnb unit you have in the back of the property or access to the swimming pool, or if they're renting out storage units at the property, or you're charging extra for um, on-site laundry or um, you know you're providing internet service for the you know four tenants that live in the property you're you're paying for it and then you're you're getting you know income from each of them you know all those different things could count as other income like just some general ideas to do that and then you add those together and it gets gross potential income otherwise this is the whole visual layout for how to calculate cash on cash we walked you through all of the individual steps and you figure out how to get it at the end to be able to see it any questions on that I will continue while I'm waiting for questions. Okay, so this is just a visual of what the spreadsheet looks like. It's basically what we covered. It just has the title and a little logo and a little copyright thing down there and what the version number is. So you can see what it is there. All right, so yesterday we talked about how to calculate cap rate, capitalization rate, which is basically that net operating income divided by the purchase price or the value gives you cap rate. Today, we talked about cash on cash. And so you can see that all the calculations are identical getting up to this net operating income box. These are identical getting up to here. It's from here and what we do with net operating income that differs. In one case, cash on cash, we subtract out the mortgage payments and the private mortgage insurance, and we divide that sum by the total cost to close in order to get cash on cash. With the cap rate one, we took that net operating income, we divided by purchase price, we just got cap rate. So cap rate does not include any financing. Big difference. The cash on cash does. So what is the difference? Cap rate ignores the financing on a property. We just said that. It's the cash on cash return on investment if the property had no mortgage. Cap rate is cash on cash if the property had no mortgage. And I'll show you how I get there on the next slide. I think it's next slide. Maybe it's two. Two or three. Cap rate is often used when we want to compare multifamily properties. You know, you have a 12 unit and a 17 unit, and you want to figure out like which one is going to be better. And you can use cap rate in order to say, well, this one's got a cap rate. You know, it's a five cap. This one's a 4.5 cap. You can kind of use those to compare. So it's, it's used to do that. Um, both need the same calculation through net operating income, which we talked about. And I walk you through the calculations already, so I'm not going to do those again. And I I hinted at this earlier when I said cash on cash, return on investment, when you're analyzing a deal for the first time to decide whether you want to buy it or not, makes a lot of sense. In fact, it's probably the primary metric for a lot of folks looking as to whether or not they should be buying a property. Look at their cash on cash, return on investment, see what their cash flow would be when they buy this property based on how much cash they have to put in there. So it's extremely important when you're first buying a property. It tells you how much cash flow your property is producing based on how much you're investing in the property. That's a good number to know. However, after you've owned the property for 10 years, does it really matter what you initially invested in the property? You know, Fast forward 10 years from now, does it matter that you only put $1,000 down on this property? Probably not. And honestly, the less you put down, the more amplified this gets, the less meaning it has. I'll give you an example about this. Let's say you managed to buy a property with nothing down and you got so many credits and rebates and everything that you literally have negative $1 in the deal. And when you do your cash-on-cash return-on-investment calculation, you have a, um, I I don't even know if this number is correct, but a negative 1,000%, let's call it negative 100%, negative 100% cash-on-cash return investment. Negative 100%. Certainly you should not buy that deal or maybe you should. What does a negative 100% return on investment mean in the terms of you having negative $1 invested in the deal? Right? It means nothing. (laughs) You know, it really means nothing. Maybe it means you have negative $100 cash flow for the year. That's nothing. I'm, I'm putting nothing down into a deal. That's silly. And that's why the smaller you put into a deal, the more amplified these returns can get in both directions. They can get really, really high positive or they get really, really high negative. This is sort of like what happens if you have an infinite return on investment if you have nothing in the deal. Well, if you have really, really small numbers, it gets skewed there. Layla says, should you really be including total cash to close, not purchase price in your cap rate calculation? No, no, for cap rate, the definition is the purchase price. So the definition of cap rate is your net operating income divided by the purchase price or the then current value of the property. We use purchase price when we're doing the, the new purchase or when you're selling a property. Um, but when you're doing a property that you already own, you use the value of the property. So that is the definition of what it is. So yeah, good question. Um, So when I was, I was saying this before. So does it really matter 10 years in the future what you had initially invested in the deal? And my, my answer is no, it does not. What if your property went up in value a lot? Does it matter that you bought it with almost nothing down? Let's say $1,000. No. Because now you have, whatever it is, $100,000 in equity. It didn't matter that you initially started with $1,000. Now you're concerned about, okay, I got $100,000 in equity. What am I earning on this $100,000 of equity? Am I only earning $500 a year in cash flow? Because $500 a year in cash flow and $100,000 is relatively small. Maybe you could take that $100,000 and invest it somewhere else and get better cash on cash. Better return on your cash flow in general. Or maybe all the other returns are so good that you still want to stay in that deal, which is why I think this is just one measure, right? Really, after the first year, and and honestly, that's an arbitrary time period. It's not like me saying exactly a year, then you change over your, your calculations. I think once you buy the property, you look at cash on cash, I think we make that decision with cash on cash immediately. Then we're like, okay. I could set this aside because this, this number no longer matters. Now, what matters is how much cash flow am I getting on my equity in the property? I think you should switch to that cash flow divided by your equity in the property, AKA cash flow return on equity. And I, I know I need to do a whole class on that. So it's coming. So that will tell you how much cash flow the equity you have in your property is producing. A slight variation of this becomes extremely important when you're considering what to do with the property you've owned, whether you should sell the property, whether you should refi it, whether you should add debt with a second mortgage or keep it as is. Uh, The variation I'm talking about is your return on true net equity. The return you'd get if you sold the property and what you'd walk away with after real estate commissions, um, capital gains taxes, depreciation recapture, and your share of closing costs. Like after you subtract out all those expenses, then whatever's left over of your equity is, is like what you should be using in your calculation because that's really the return you're getting, right? The cash flow you're getting on what you could walk away is the return you'd have to think about replacing. It's not really your return just on raw equity because that's a mag- that's a magical made up number. It's not really reality. I mean, it's it's equity, but it's not what you'd walk away with. It's not a number that you could actually see. Okay, all right, all right. So here's what I'm talking about: cash flow return on equity, becomes cap rate. So if we think about this, the cash flow you're getting divided by how much equity you have in your property really eventually becomes that cap rate calculation. And I'll show you what I mean by that. So here is the calculation for cash on cash return investment. It's that net operating income minus your mortgage payments, minus your property, your private mortgage insurance. Well, if it's property's free and clear, if you no longer have a mortgage on it, these go away. And so then it becomes net operating income Literally equals cash flow because this, when these are zero, becomes cash flow. And then your total cash flow, when we stop looking at your total cost to close and we now look at return on equity, this becomes equity. Well, what's equity? Equity is your property value when you have no mortgage. So this becomes net operating income, which is really equal to cash flow, divided by your total cost to close, which we really start looking at as return on equity. And equity becomes your property value. So this literally becomes cap rate. So cash on cash, return on investment is cap rate for a property that is free and clear, that you no longer have a mortgage on when we think about it in terms of return on equity. Mind blown. Okay. So that's what I covered there. And, And by the way, this last slide, if you never understood this, it doesn't matter. This is not a critical understanding piece of information. It's sort of like a fun parlor trick. Helpful to realize if you're thinking about things in certain ways, but otherwise it is superfluous. You do not need to know this. It's not on the test. Okay, there we go. All right. So what are typical cash on cash return on investment numbers? I wish I could tell you, you know, they're always this, but there's so many variables. It can vary by market. If you're looking in California versus New York versus Florida versus Texas versus Colorado, like all of these different. Markets in general and even city specific have varying what's normal cash on cash return on, the, on investments. And so they can vary a lot. And even within the market, you can't say, oh, all the properties in Fort Collins, Colorado are all 5% cash on cash, which they're not. I mean, you know that just by gut instinct, right? There are deals that are better than others. And what you can negotiate on a deal is better than others. Plus, Even if all the properties were identical, the financing you get on a property changes your cash on cash return on investment. So there's no way that they could be good because someone getting a 20% down loan in order to buy this as a non-owner occupant is gonna be very different than someone getting 25% down loan on that property or someone buying it as an owner occupant with 20% down or an owner occupant with 5% down or an owner occupant with 3.5% down FHA loan. Like the loan type now changes your characteristics of this, right? Because it not only changes... The mortgage payments and PMI in a lot of cases, but it also changes the total amount you invested in order to buy the property. You put more down, that number gets bigger. You put less down, that number gets smaller. You put more down, the cash flow tends to get bigger because your mortgage payment gets smaller. If you put less down, your mortgage payment gets higher and your cash flow tends to go down. So it's like a combination of both these things, and they don't act equally. If you were to graph this, it's not linear. It's not like, oh, if I put more down, I automatically get exactly that amount more in cash flow. No, it doesn't work that way, especially since interest rates change based on your loan type and how much you put down. You put down 20% to buy it as a non-owner occupant versus putting down 25%. It's not just you put 5% more down. It's also that the interest rate you get from the lender for putting 20% down is different than the interest rate you get from putting 25% down. That's what makes this complicated. It's not easy. You need to actually sit down with the spreadsheet, the world's greatest real estate deal analysis spreadsheet, enter your numbers for both types of loans you're considering with the actual interest rates and actual down payments and see what happens to your cash flow. And sometimes it makes sense to put more down. Sometimes it makes sense to put less down, partially depending on what your goal is. See the class tomorrow. Okay. Let me make sure I covered everything I want to cover in here. Yeah. And the, the thing I pointed out before, putting less down tends to amplify your cash on cash return. It t- tends to make it bigger because that amount you put down is in the denominator, total cost to close. So that as that number gets smaller, it tends to amplify. It tends to make whatever your return is bigger. If it's positive, it gets bigger positive in general. If it's negative, it tends to get bigger negative. So... When you're doing Nomad and you're putting very small amounts down, you can have these really abnormally high cash-on-cash returns and these abnormally low cash-on-cash returns, negative, okay? In general, nicer, high-demand properties tend to have lower cash-on-cash return on investment numbers. If you want to go buy pretty properties, properties that you feel really good about and you're like, I like this property, it's really, really nice. In general, those tend to have lower cash-on-cash return investment numbers, Usually the properties that have better net operating income, better cash flow on them, are the properties that are rougher, less nice. You know, they're ones that they have some type of economic or, or location challenge or structural or conditional challenge on them. Those are the ones you tend to get better cash flow. You know, this is like the, the classic slumlord Um, kind of metaphor or or kind of terminology, right? You you, you tend to associate the people that have these cash flowing properties as these slumlords because the properties tend to be run down, tend to kind of like forego some maintenance to improve their cash flow by having that lower maintenance number. And they kind of like live on the fringe trying to get these higher cash flows on that. Or these nicer high demand properties tend to be lower. There's some exceptions to this, right? You do nicer properties that are Airbnbs, maybe you can have enough income where those become nicer. You know, so like a short-term rental, vacation rental sort of strategy could help you overcome that. But with traditional long-term buying whole properties, that's the, the general rule of thumb. All right. So have I carefully avoided telling you what a typical cash on cash return investment number is by explaining to you how much they can vary market to market and within the markets and based on the financing you're getting and like all those different things? Can you see how I uh, narrowly avoided having to give you a number because- they're all over the place. All right. I want to make sure. All right, so this is a new spreadsheet? Yeah, too many variables. Exactly. You need to run the numbers and and, and the more deals you run, Leila, if you go analyze, you know, 50 deals from the MLS and you kind of you start getting a feel for what it is what a, what a good cash-on-cash cash return on investment would be in your marketplace with the type of financing that you're looking to do. Then you start seeing a range. You're like, "Oh, this one's, you know, 2%, this one's 3%, this one's 3.5%, this one's 1%. And then you get the feel for like what the range is. And then when you find one that is, you know, near the top 20% of your range, and it hits all of your other goal requirements and, and kind of restrictions there. And you know, kind of like your, your selection criteria, then you could say, well, this seems like a pretty good deal. It's not necessarily the highest cash on cash return investment. It's you know high, but it also has these other things going for it. So I think that's how you make your decisions. All right, rental portfolio, cash on cash return investment. So this just walks you through um, the calculations. You enter in your different properties here. You enter in your net operating income, mortgage payments, private mortgage insurance. I think it calculates cash flow for you. Um, You put in your total cost flows, and it will calculate cash on cash return investment. So it'll do this, and then it summarizes what your average is for each one of these fields, each one of these uh, columns, and your total. So uh, that spreadsheet is also brand new. Just an easy way to keep track of this if cash on cash return investment is important to you, which, as I just pointed out, You're probably not doing this, right? If anything, you'd want one that is your rental property portfolio cash flow return on equity number. In my opinion, that's a better number to know. And if you're going to do that one, you might as well do the return quadrants because you're going to want to know appreciation, debt pay down, depreciation, and the cash flow all at the same time and reserves and what the number is for those. So you'll probably want that, which it's coming. Okay. This is the world's greatest real estate deal analysis spreadsheet, very modestly named. It's my my humility showing through and the the naming of this particular spreadsheet that I made. Uh, But you can download a copy, real realestatefinancialplanner.com forward slash spreadsheet. And this is where your cash on cash return investment is shown. In this case, it's the green little bars. It shows you what it is. It has a little number showing you what it is in year one, two, three, four, five. You know, again, I don't think that's a good number to look at past year one, but I do show it to you. And then cap rate for the first five years shows you those two in case you are a cap rate person. Because really the world is divided into people that are like, you know, I'm more of a cap rate guy or gal or more of a cash on cash guy or gal. And so you can look at those kind of as two different worlds. And so whatever you want, it's there. And so you enter in all the numbers, like all the inputs, all the red boxes are just over here for analyzing the deal. And once you enter all this in, all these charts update. Um, it's You know, the one I'm highlighting is because there's a class on how to calculate cash on cash is this one right here, which is where the number is. Otherwise you do these numbers and all these other metrics uh, charts get updated. All right, any questions on that? Sweet. And then if you wanna see what this number is over time, you can go look at this number um, through year 40. This is just on the overrides tab of the same spreadsheet. So this is part of the world's greatest real real estate deal analysis spreadsheet, it's mouthful too. And then on the bottom, there's an overrides tab for a different sheet. And then shows you this as part of a lot of other calculations. It shows you all the intermediate steps, but it also shows you these. And I've highlighted them with color to make it a little easier to find. All right. So this is the return quadrants. And it shows you the five areas of return you have when you buy rental properties appreciation, tendency for property values to increase over time, cash flow, which is what we're talking about. We talk about cash on cash return on investment, uh, debt pay down, how much of the loan you're paying down over the next year tax benefits, your depreciation benefits on the property um, by owning a rental property, and then the amount of return you're earning on the reserves you've set aside in order to own the property, and then the total of all five of those. Okay, So it shows you what those are. What I want to point out is this cash flow one, that is cash on cash return investment when you're buying the property. So typically cash on cash return investment is represented here for the return on investment quadrant. So when you're looking at it for year one, this is a really important number to look at. For your number. And that is literally cash on cash return. That's the calculation we did today. Okay. All right. Improving cash on cash return on investment. I did not expect this class to go this long. It's all the tangents I'm going off on. So I expect to be done around this point. But I've only got, you know, three more slides left to go. And one of them is like a final, just kind of like contact information. So improving cash on cash return investment. If you want to methodically go through each one of these red input boxes and think about how can I improve this? How can I increase it? How can I decrease it? If it's an expense, you want to decrease it. If it's an income source, you want to increase it. But how can I improve on each one of these boxes? What could I do? Well, that's pretty much what I did in the class on how to improve cash flow. Because if you go through and you methodically think of all the different ways you can increase rents, all the different ways you can get other income on a property, all the different ways that you can decrease your vacancy all the different ways you can kind of keep your property taxes low or reduce them in some cases, all the different ways you can kind of mitigate property insurance, all the different ways you can reduce your HOA expense, which is hard to do landlord paid utilities, which is really hard to do other expenses, which you may be able to do maintenance on a property. How do you kind of reduce maintenance overall? And then how do you reduce, property management without having to do all the work yourself. Like if you think about reducing all those and mortgage payments, that's all the financing stuff and PMI, which is all the PMI related stuff and the total cost to close, which is minimizing how much you have invested in the deal and getting seller to pay some closing costs. Like all those things, if you think about how to improve all those, that's literally how you improve cash on cash. So you can methodically go through each one and do that. Or I created this new tool, which allows you to improve cash on cash, return on investment, focuser, which I'll be teaching a class about at some point in the future, but here's the very, very short version of it. On the left side are all the income expenses and calculations. So all the red ones are your primary inputs. The Blue ones are those secondary um, real estate metrics. The yellow ones are tertiary ones. And then the green one is what we're trying to solve for. That's the ultimate one we're doing. It shows you what the values we use from this thing right here. All these red values just get moved over there. So it shows you all the values that we're doing and then it says, okay, if I change rent by 10%, increase it by 10%, this is what the new value would be. And if I changed it to this new value, here's what the new cash on cash return investment would be. So it went from 4.895 to now 7.73. Well, that's a 57.92% improvement. So that would be a good one to focus on if you were trying to improve your cash on cash. But it shows you if you only improve other income by this amount, then it only improves it by 1.39%. If you improve it, if you improve this other one by... 10%, you reduce your operating expenses and increase your cash on cash return investment by 14.33. So you could see the ones that make the biggest difference, which ones you should focus on to improve your cash on cash return on investment. And you can play with these numbers. You could change it and say, look, if this only went up by 5% or 1% or what if this went down and this one did, and it only does one variable. So this only calculates what happens if rent changes, it doesn't do rent and other income and property taxes and does a calculation it's only a single one to focus on okay this is the second page of the visual cash on cash return on investment rental property calculator so it's, it's the second tab that's where you'll find it all right additional examples last slide if you want to see me kind of walk through these calculations again for basically any property that we model you can go ahead and um Go to real estate financial planner.com forward slash calculate cash on cash has dashes in there, um, and any of the models you go to. If you go to the models page, real estate financial planner forward slash model, realstatefinancialplanner. dot forward slash model. And if you pick a particular model, you know, like doing nomad or put twenty percent down or whatever, and then you go to copy it, it'll list the properties that it has in there, and below the property it'll say, walk me through the cash on cash, or walk me through cap rate, or walk me through net operating income, so you can see me with software walk you through this analysis and I explain to you what the steps are and where we got those numbers from and everything else. So if you want to see those, that's how you can do that. And that's only three minutes over is the end of presentation. Any final questions? You guys are very welcome. Wow. People are saying thank you without even me saying that. So you are very, very welcome for that. Um, Hopefully that was super helpful for you guys with walking through cash on cash and how to get it done and why you, Probably don't need to manually calculate it. Just use a spreadsheet to do it. Um, but hopefully that'll be helpful. And I hope some of the tangents, right? like there's always this debate over, do I go off on tangents and give you the extra information that maybe wasn't on the slide, but it reminds me, it's like, oh, well, I need to tell you about this. And so let me go share with you this sort of insight on some other stuff. Yeah, so people love the extra stuff. That's awesome. Okay, cool. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone likes the tangents. Everybody likes the tangents. So that's it, folks. Thank you for coming to show up live. I'll try to get the recording, provided the recording goes through. I'll try to get the recording up for those that have access to it. Um, enjoy your weekend. I will talk to you all soon. And I am doing a class tomorrow. So uh, if you want to log in for that, that'd be awesome. Bye-bye for now. With home prices up, mortgage interest rates up, and rents up but not quite enough to counteract the higher prices and interest rates, cash flow on rental properties in Cedar Rapids is harder than ever. Book a call with the Real Estate Financial Planner to apply our proprietary 88 strategies to improve cash flow on your rentals. See the show notes for a link to schedule your call and improve your cash flow today. If you're a real estate agent, lender, or professional in Cedar Rapids that wants to help our real estate investor listeners, consider reaching out to learn about collaboration opportunities with this podcast.